Welcome everybody. Welcome to the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics webinar. We are um, going to start now. Um, I'd like to um, welcome Dr. Azra Raza to the PAID webinar. Dr. Azra Raza um, is, mashallah, very well-known um, doctor, medical researcher from the um, now the US, originally from Pakistan. She comes from Karachi, I think. She'll tell, her, tell us all about herself. But let me just quickly say, she is now a chaired professor in Columbia. Uh, she's a Chang Sung Shang professor of medicine and director of the MDS, which is an arcane form of cancer. I've just learned about it reading a book. <clears throat> I will not profess to know anything about it except the little that I read from a book of which I deciphered very little. So, but she's a professor of this very important form of cancer and she's written extensively about it. She published author, uh, but more recently, this is a book that is on the verge of being a bestseller. Uh, she's been a professor at many places. I won't go through her resume. She's got a number of uh, papers around, but most importantly, another interesting thing to think about, she's also a literary figure. And you'll see her in the literary Lahore Literary Festival as well as Thinkfest. And there she'll be talking about Ghalib and uh, poetry, not about uh, medicine. But we thought we'd, uh, you know, uh, pick her brain on medicine. Um, in a book also, she quotes extensively from poetry, an envious repertoire. So I must say I was very impressed by her knowledge of literature as well. But let me go ahead and uh, start the webinar. Azra, PID is a public policy think tank. PID has very little to do with medicine, but public policy is a huge uh, enterprise. It's trying to develop the whole of Pakistan. So I think we need to be informed of many subjects and we try and keep us as very broad-based and we are much more of a platform and a network than really an organization. So we are trying to network everybody. Samia is one of our honorary members. She's now a professor at LUMS. Samia is going to be another the co-moderating with me, Samia, the professor of LUMS. She's a, a doctor herself, a public health specialist, and she's participated in many PID events as well as done webinars for us. So <clears throat> Samia we regard as a PID member, although she's now being paid by LUMS, but that's besides the point. So um, PID is a broad-based intellectual network, and we love to connect uh, Pakistani researchers from all over the world so that our people can learn. We are a small university too, and I want our kids to pick the brains of all Pakistanis like yourself. <clears throat> In any case, reading your book, First Cell, her book's name is First Cell. I should also mention that I should have put up a picture here, but I will. Uh, the First Cell book, which uh, Azra has also graciously said that she will donate a few copies to PID so that we can give it to our students. First Cell was a fascinating book, I must say, because uh, um, she was able to collect these lovely stories. Obviously, she has treated God knows how many thousand patients, but she was able to collect a few stories from her patients and present them in their, the, what, what should I say, the horror of their pain, but in such an empathetic fashion, in such a beautiful fashion, that honestly, um, one was carried away by their personalities, but while seeing their pain, but also being able to get insights into medicine. But what I found very interesting was that the similarities between the problem she's attacking, cancer, and the problem we are attacking, which is getting a society to move. 
And I thought it would be very interesting to have this webinar for everybody to see that, hey, research is research. The human quest is the same, that we're all trying to find answers to some things. And in any case, we need to learn about medicine and cancer. And uh, so this is a happy combination. So I'm glad that I invited you. So let me begin by asking the first question, then Samia, Samia will take and one quest, we alternate questions. So, uh, Azra, <clears throat> I just want to take some quotes from your books, from your book, and just get you to connect the dots. Um, so I picked out a few things. I mean, the, the most interesting thing that you begin with, you say emphatically in a few places, it is an embarrassment. Equally embarrassing is the arrogant denial of that embarrassment. And you're talking about cancer research. And I can say that about economic research. That's where I found the parallel. I find the same thing about my research that, hey, we keep doing these things, but Pakistan goes nowhere. So, you know, that's a problem. And you say, I could not have written this book when I was 30 years old. And I think there's a story there that you, I, I think, point out in your book, but I would like you to kind of go over that. And then you also say that in clinic, uh, in scientific meetings, I felt like a fraud, a posturing intellectual phony a gaping disconnect between knowledge about cancer biology and the capacity to use this research to benefit patients is staggering. Yet cancer research for most part remains paleolithic in comparison. And then you keep saying, you say that stay positive with the refrain is as if it were a sin to voice the intense pain and suffering of cancer patients. So I thought I'd, I'd just begin here, get your views. Um, how do you connect these things? I just picked up stray things from your book, but it'd be fun to hear how you connected. Um, thank you very much, Nadeem. Can you hear me properly? Yes, all of very well, very well. Um, <clears throat> I'm so honored to be sharing this stage with you, but especially with Samia Altaf, uh, who is a dear friend uh, and a very admired and respected writer as far as uh, the Raza family is concerned, because Samia has been contributing her brilliant pieces uh, to uh, Three Quarks Daily, which is, of course, the website my younger brother, uh, Sayyid Abbas Raza, edits. And I must say that whenever I see Samia's name appear, it is a must read for me. And um, I have to control myself from constantly sending her complimentary messages because her writing comes from the heart and addresses important issues. So young people, if you haven't read Samia, please go to Three Quarks Daily, just put in her name. You'll come up with such beautiful pieces that at least move me very deeply. So thank you, Samia, for taking the time for me today. Um, Nadeem is of course a new uh, acquaintance, but his sister is well known to me. And uh, somehow we have never managed to meet because uh, we live in different cities, but I'm also deeply honored to be invited to this forum today, especially so because I'm speaking to younger people. I'll begin with the, word, uh, with the first sentence that you read that I could not have written this book 30 years ago. And it brings to mind Nadeem uh, really the epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest known written uh, text that has been discovered uh, only in the 19th century. Uh, but the idea is that in the epic, the protagonist uh, who is the hero and king and everything wants to go out and make a mark on the world by discovering something great. 
and travels for many, many years, has all these adventures, comes back. And when he comes back, it's not the worlds that he has conquered, but the experiences he had in those years that made him the human being ready to accept defeats and challenges and successes all as part of life. And that is really the epic of, for me, is the epic journey that I have taken in the past 30 years. Uh, it's not what I have accomplished as much as what I have learned about various things. Uh, things like cancer, things like human anguish, things like cancer research, what it means. And uh, so I'll stop here and let you ask, ask me the next question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Samia, go ahead. Samia, have we lost Samia? Madam Samia, kindly unmute yourself. Okay, if Samia has lost, then let me, uh, let me continue. Okay, I'd like you to tell me why you, um, I mean, you, you put out a brand new idea on uh, cancer research, right? Why is it that you feel that cancer research, which is the hot, most hotly researched and debated topic in the world and probably the most, one of the most important uh, public health problems, why do you feel that the research on that is going nowhere? Because we are spending a huge amount of money not only researching cancer, but also treating cancer. Yeah. So Nadeem, this brings me, a, I'd like to give a little bit of a background. I grew up in Pakistan and in, I graduated from med school in Karachi. And of course, I'm so deeply seeped in my own tehzeeb and culture and traditions, I never wanted to leave the country. But I knew if I stayed back in Pakistan, number one, my desire to do very advanced scientific research would be um, become secondary to being an activist. And I didn't want to become an activist. I wanted, I was too intellectually engaged uh, in the question of cancer. So I came to this country and I have been working here for 43 years now. And at the end of 43 years, guess what I am? An activist, of course. So one, you can't escape your fate, young people. Um, and wherever you go, you will find problems in the field. And the main issue for me and for any intellectual in the academy, in, in the humanities, uh, in economics, for example, is that First, we are dealing with an immediate problem. For me, the immediate problem is the patient who's sitting across the desk from me in clinic, and I'm trying to find the best solution for the patient. So I started my career by studying acute leukemia. Very soon, and within eight years or so, I realized that this disease is so deadly and so complicated that in my lifetime, it will not be cured. Unfortunately, I was right because young people think about this. In 1977, I began my career by studying, by treating acute myeloid leukemia patients with two drugs. Combination is popularly called seven and three because it's seven days of one chemotherapy, three days of another. In 2021, I'm still using seven and three. So what have I done in 43 years? But I knew that this is going to happen in, back in 1984. So I started paying attention to the stories my patients were telling me. Many of them said that their blood counts had fallen months, if not years, before they developed acute leukemia. 
And that stage is called pre-leukemia or myelodysplastic syndromes. Mm. So I said to myself, the disease must be must, much easier to handle if we find it at, at an earlier stage. And that's how I started to also study pre-leukemia and following these patients as they developed acute leukemia. And that's when I started saving samples in 1984, blood and marrow samples on my patients, because if I'm going to study the disease, I, might, I must have the samples. If I had gone to school in this country, my next step would have been to make a mouse model. But I was a naive uh, immigrant who depended on instinct rather than tradition. And my instinct was, if I'm going to study human disease, I should have human samples. What do mice have to do? carefully for people to understand. You're saying that there is a certain paradigm that prevails in cancer, right? Mm -hmm. That cancer treatment remains the same as it has over the last 40, 50 years, roughly. And you use this very poignant term, slash poison and burn, right? Can you explain this a little bit and what the mice, mouse model means, just so yeah. people understand? Thank you, Nadeem. That's a good prompt. Um, so the idea from time immemorial, which is, let me just go back to 550 BC, Queen Atossa, the Persian queen, wife of Darius, daughter of Cyrus the Great, she developed a lump in her breast. This is 2,500 years ago. She tried to ignore it. It wouldn't go away. She covered it with sheets. It kept growing. So she asked a Greek slave to help her. He took out his sword and he slashed her breast. 2,500 years ago, today, what are we doing for breast cancer for women? Slashing their breast. How did chemotherapy start? In 1917, the first use of chemical weapons in the Great War. It's now known as the First World War, but then we didn't know that we are going to have a Second World War, so we should call this one the first. We called it the Great War. Chemical weapons that were used showed that victims' blood counts dropped. And so these two smart pharmacologists, Goodman and Gilman at Yale said, well, why don't we use these poisons to poison leukemia cells in the uh, blood and marrow? <clears throat> and that's how chemotherapy started. And the first three chemotherapeutic drugs that were developed, cytoxin, chlorambucil, melphalan. In 1940s, I used with my own hands on my own husband now. So the point I'm making is the same poisoning approach the same slashing approach and the burning approach, which means radiation therapy, we are using the same. Now, two thirds of cancer patients, we can diagnose at earlier stages of the disease and using slash poison burn, we can cure them. Hmm. But with the same horrendous therapy, right? We are curing them, but with horrible therapy. The one third that we can't cure because they presented with advanced disease Unfortunately, their outcome is no different today in 2021 than it was in 1930. Mm -hmm. So the question I've asked is, where has a quarter of a trillion dollars gone, $250 billion, where have they gone if we are still using these paleolithic caveman approaches to treat cancer, even if we are curing them, they deserve better. And the one third we don't cure, we haven't shifted the needle one iota for the majority of them. Now there have been little advances, CAR T therapy that helps 7,000 patients. What is 7,000 compared to the uh, 20 million who will be diagnosed? You tell me. 
And that 7,000 also can only be treated in the ivory towers of the richest and most affluent country in the world. So what about our responsibility as citizens of the world in developing a compassionate cure? And my only conclusion is that the best news you can give to a cancer patient is, oh, you have cancer, but good news, we diagnosed early, we can help you. So why not diagnose early, early, early at the first stage rather than stage one at the first cell stage? So when I say the first cell stage, it is the earliest perturbations caused by cancer, the appearance of the literally the first cancer cell way before it becomes stage one disease that is detected by mammograms or colonoscopy or x-rays and scans. That's the difference. So over the last 30 years, like Gil, in, the, in the epic of Gilgamesh, what I have learned is with time that, yes, I moved from acute leukemia to pre-leukemia. Then I realized after 20 years, no, pre-leukemia is too late. We need to go earlier than pre-leukemia. Why did some people get pre-leukemia? What was it that made them at high risk or susceptible to get this cancer? And that's when I started to think about how do we find the first cell? Because by the time the disease is diagnosed, it's already a billion cells that have formed a tumor. And I think you make a very good point that um, um, there, there is a search for the wonder drug that will cure the cancer. So we continue to seek more and more arcane drugs, which are more and more expensive. For example, there could be as much as $100,000, $200,000 a treatment or uh, for a year's treatment. And you make a case that you bankrupt families in that search. Whereas the biggest gain is from the first cell or the early diagnosis. And we don't put enough resources in the early diagnosis. Now, why is that? I mean, the pharmaceutical companies are engaged in the, in the, in the quest for uh, better and better drugs, or, or who's, what, how, how does it work? Why can't we shift the, the paradigm? Why is the paradigm still continuing to follow the yeah. search for the best drug? So what you said about finding this magic treatment, we call it the magic bullet. Mm -hmm. This is the result of a very reductionist way of thinking. You see, the first cancer model that was proposed in the 1970s was that cancer is a disease of the genes. We have to find which particular genes went awry and started to malfunction because of uh, a mutation or getting constitutively turned on for whatever reason, that everything can be reduced in a way to one gene. And then once we find what that abnormal gene is, we should find what is the abnormal protein it's making. And now we can target that one protein with one magic bullet. And you know, Nadeem and Samia knows this story very well. It worked in early on in two diseases, chronic myeloid leukemia and acute promyelocytic leukemia. We did find that one gene was <clears throat> kinds of cancers and we could find magic bullets. The, uh, you know, chronic myeloid leukemia has been, is cured now before it becomes acute leukemia with Gleevec the drug imatinib and acute promyelocytic leukemia is cured with vitamin A because we found that one gene was causing. Now this seemed to prove the paradigm that the model is correct. And now everyone felt the reductionist approach is the right approach. We just have to find the one gene that causes pancreatic cancer, one gene that causes ovarian cancer, and then finding the drug won't be a problem. This is how we started to function. The problem is 
that by the time we sequence the human genome, we found there are thousands of mutations in other cancers, that it can't be a reductionist problem. But Nadeem, the issue is that by now, younger people, they're too scared to exercise original ideas because they could make mistakes and mistakes don't promote your career. Yeah. And the older people have spent 30 years doing the same thing. So how are they going to change? Their interest is, and the biggest problem is that our paychecks, you see in the humanities, if I was employed by the department of say uh, humanities at Columbia University, they would pay my salary. But because I am a professor and a researcher in the medical part of Columbia University, I have to raise my own salary through clinical work and bringing in research grants. So if my research grants are going to be reviewed by other researchers who have spent 30 years doing mouse model work and reductionist approach, then I have to continue to write those grants. Mm -hmm. And I told you, young people can't get away. So it's not like we are trying to perpetuate a model. And I'll say one last thing and then stop. My office at Columbia University has a beautiful view. When they were recruiting me and whining and dining me, I said, look, I, I don't need you know, any kind of big uh, uh, recruitment packages because I was bringing a ton of research money myself and I had a professorship. <clears throat> so I said, give me an office with a view because I spend so much time in it and I, I work so much on looking out of the window. So actually the chief gave me his, the office next to him and I have one of the most beautiful views. But uh, Nadeem and Samia, from my office, I can see George Washington Bridge. Hmm. And every other day, there's a huge traffic jam. Now, if you wanted to find out the reason for a traffic jam, you see, one day the reason could be there was an accident. Another day, because there was road construction going on and they had blocked. A third day, because it's a malevolent, revengeful politician who's angry at the mayor of Fort Lee and is punishing him by causing backups, as you know, happened a few years ago. Yeah. But to find the cause of the traffic jam by looking into the individual car's engines, think of the reductionist approaches to start looking at the car's engine. Why is there a traffic jam? That's the problem. We are focusing looking at a single cell and a gene in a single cell, whereas all the whole body is yes. being attacked by cancer and responding in freezing ways. So, but you see, to bring people to a new model of thinking, a new way of thinking, meets with resistance everywhere. Uh, however, uh, once you invent a word pro processor, nobody thinks of the typewriter anymore. So my point is, I don't have to work too hard to try to change minds. I just have to show success of the new model. And that's what I'm going to show within this decade. Good point. Very good. Excellent. Samia, you want to come in? Have you got your voice now, Samia? Uh -huh. Can you hear me? Go ahead. We can hear you. Huh? I'm so sorry. You know, uh, uh, Azra was talking about me. Or na me or na mera system uski tab na la seka or am crash karge. Yeah, kind of come into the modern age, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much, Azra, for your kind words, and it's such a privilege to to be able to talk to you. You know, I I must say that I started to read your book, and I um, 
actually last year and i just read the preface and i found myself so overcome uh with your with your story and with the the with the emotion and the poignancy which you had you had made a plea for this by bringing the human being in the middle of it you know i thought it was just so touching and so much needed because the the whole medical industry is moving towards this technology based uh, based uh, 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 model of care and we are forgetting the human being so i was very touched and actually at that time i had to put it down because i it was, i was just so overwhelmed by that because to some extent that is what our struggle is you know nadeem and i from different uh, different uh, perspectives but at the same time from the same perspective we are struggling with this that uh you know jaise we they we talk about it and i have been known to saying to people ke gdp grow kar gaya ya kam ho gaya gdp to bachcho ne nahi khana na people need food and and you know human beings need other things so i just and also you know it resonated very much with me because as nareen has said in the beginning that for jaise aapne kaha ke for the past 50 years uh you know the cancer treatment is exactly the same it hasn't changed and for for uh, from what i understood is that the that the providers of care and and doctors who are who are oncologists and the health system that provides care refuses to see that they are not getting the results that they desire and that they anticipate that also resonated very much with me because you know we've been saying that for the past 50 years we've been trying to fix the health systems of developing countries using the same methodology and the same model and we are getting no results and yet we don't have that discussion at all that why are we failing why do we not have that those results so i was very touched at at uh, many levels by by your book so i i now have a I have a couple of questions for you ek to ye azra the question that has intrigued me very much and i find that so prescient of you that you know you were a young physician who had just finished her her training and i remember you know doing that in the united states myself and i remember being completely clueless about what to do in future and what the future holds and where am i going to go khair mai abhi bhi kafi clueless hu magar us waqt to bilkul so i am just so impressed by this fact that you know way back you were so prescient about this whole issue that you started to take tissue sample तो थोड़ा सा आप उसका जवाब दीजिएगा थोड़ी सी वो 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 मैं सुनना चाहती हूँ द अदर थिंग इज दैट यू यू रेज दिस इशू दैट यू नो दिव फॉर पीपल ऑफकोर्स यू नो दिवॉर्ड्स टू यंग यंग डॉक्टर्स एंड रिवॉर्ड्स टू पीपल हु वॉन्ट टू मेक अ करियर आर इन एन एस्टेब्लिश डाउन गोइंग डाउन एन एस्टेब्लिश पार्ट and if they don't do that there are no no rewards and there is so the, there are a lot of incentives for going down that that path and a lot of disincentives for doing anything radical or doing anything new and, and anything uh, of that kind you know i've also encountered that in 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 public health i actually you know started out to be a surgeon and after two years of surgical residency i switched to public health uh and uh, and uh, you know there have been there have been uh, it has been a constant struggle to try and convince people that you know in the future the health systems will become very very unmanageable and financially very very difficult to maintain so my question to you is that uh, and i heard you say that that you know you would you will show results and that will speak for themselves but the thing is that you know the 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 uh hurdles what are the hurdles that you see in that 
because you know these are very large systems and you know of course you know you have a position and you have a you have a place and a credibility and and an authenticity and and the uh, kind of platforms that you have that i feel that there is no doubt that you can be very very effective but still you know turning large systems over they have an inertia and an, and an inner momentum which they keep going down one rock so ye thoda sa speak to that please if you can i'm sure you you have not such brilliant questions i didn't expect anything less from you samia uh, very I nice you are too kind no oh, i remember the dinner we had at my place last year yes. just yes. before yes. the lockdown it was ah. so wonderful ah. how much poetry we exchanged that ah. day lots of poetry well i'll answer all three of your questions i'll try to be brief your first question is that well um I grew up in Pakistan. I come here, do my training. How was I so prescient? I come back to the patient over and over. And thank you for pointing out the fact that in my book, I have looked at every issue, whether it's related to policy or big pharma or to research, clinical, basic. I've looked at everything through the prism of human anguish, because ultimately. the responsibility for every one of us is to reduce human suffering and if by our actions instead of reducing it we are hurting humans then shame on us and that's what i meant by it is an embarrassment that nadeem quoted earlier on so when i came to this country i kept paying attention to the patient and when i am unable to find the answer to the patient it forces kept forcing me to think well what else is around how else can i help the patient so once you move out of the patient you look at the family the community the wider society what are the bigger policies why are we where we are and it isn't that i woke up overnight it happened sequentially there were many falls many disasters but i kept sticking to the patient the central theme was always that i want young people are in this audience and you asked a very good question well how do you carve out a niche for yourself which is different than the you know established voices how do you become anti establishment when your career depends on being part of the establishment i want to say one thing here which is that to the young people please do not wear <coughs> fighting with everybody as a badge of honor that is not a good idea i don't encourage you going out at a young age of 26 or 36 waving your sword and trying to strike down everybody your job is to work as hard as you can to make a success of your point first so don't uh, i mean the fact that you have to be a professor for example at 39 i became a professor and with an endowed professorship but was that my goal in coming to america that i'll go to an ivy league school and and get an endowed professorship this is my third one if that was my goal i should have sat back on my laurels young people do not make things like that your goal but they are important for your career because yes that is what establishment is going to appreciate you need to work within the establishment but the what i want to tell you is you need to create your own audience by showing success after success so by trying to work hard as hard as you can 
use every intellectual, spiritual, emotional uh, faculty to bear on your work and be so sincere that people around you are affected and say, yes, this person is working very hard. And if there is any merit to this project, let's give her a chance. <clears throat> and that's how it kept developing into a so I didn't go out fighting with everybody. In fact, my husband used to be the fighter because he came from Brooklyn, New York. And then he would fight with everybody, Samya, and then he would turn to me with the chair of medicine, with the dean of the medical school, with president of the university. He would fight with everyone, then turn to me and said, now you go and Azra them. Azra them he meant, I have to now use all my diplomacy and intellect and emotions to calm them down and say, well, this is what he was really trying to say, not to fight with type thing. So the Azra them should not be taken in a derogatory way. The point is that you create an audience for what you want. <clears throat> like Steve Jobs said, people don't know what they need. I'm going to tell them what they need. They need an iPhone that looks so beautiful. He created the taste. We didn't know we had that taste for an iPhone. So young people, your job is to be so sincere to your what is in front of you right now. Work so hard that you are the best person that you can be. Not competing with others, but competing with yourself that I can do better. Do that. And within this tablet, you should top in your class. You should take every test you uh, they, that is offered to you and keep doing the right thing. And believe me, somebody will hear you. And final question that you asked uh, was related to, there are so many vast areas involved, Samia, you pointed out correctly. And my thing is, yes, we need research, we need technological improvement, but we also need education, not just of the field, but of the public in general. And finally, we need to make policy changes that are not going to happen overnight, but policy changes follow successes, believe me. And so the idea is that we work hard, we stick to what, and we change. Don't be afraid to change young people. If you think that you're, you started with this idea for some reason, if you change now, people will think you're inconsistent, <clears throat> you're a fool of some kind. No, uh, only um, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, said Emerson in his famous essay, Self-Reliance. So if you are foolishly consistent, that's going to be the end of you. No, change with the time, change with the technology, be open to new ideas, and finally build a consensus around you always, which means yours shouldn't be the lonely voice. If you really have a point to make, other people will understand. And you know what happened? I mean, people ask me, oh, you must feel like an injured uh, animal of some sort because you are no I don't feel like that at all in fact I'm very well respected and invited everywhere nationally internationally <clears throat> even though I speak with a different voice but as soon as we went on to the lockdown and I got introduced to zoom you know what I did I created a the oncology think tank and I invited 30 of the top leaders from the country, from Harvard and MD Anderson and Johns Hopkins and University of Chicago, name it, all the top places, their leaders in oncology. And so we started meeting two hours every week. Uh, Samia will understand this because imagine getting 30 people together yeah. uh, who believe that they are halfway to pick up their Nobel prizes anyway. Right. How hard it is to get them 
to meet every week for two hours, 17 meetings, came up with an opinion paper that is now charting out the route to the first cell. We published it in Scientific American just two weeks ago. Go and look at it, kids. Okay. Okay. And now that I have a consensus of 30 voices, 25 leaders of academia and five from top industries, including Regeneron, which has just made the monoclonal antibodies that saved President Trump's life. Um, these top leaders are the ones who are interested in early detection of cancer technology, not early detection as stage one, but the first cell. And they are listening to me. So now uh, we have a 30 member panel, the head of oncology at Harvard is on it. I mean, really big, big names are on it. So you build consensus, don't try to fight the system, but rather change the audience, change the rhetoric by showing excellence and sincerity. But Azra, the problem that we have here is that, I don't know whether it's a colonial mentality or whatever it is, our young people seem to want to follow rather than lead. They want to copy what's happening in the West rather than stake out a claim for themselves. Now, how important is it for you to start thinking differently at a very young age? And should you try and form your own hypotheses and theses at a young age, or should you, uh, should, should you wait till a later age to do that? Nadeem, I think that the young have an arrogance, of course. At 24, I was sure I'll cure cancer in five years. And you can't take that away from them because that is a spirit that the young have. And I admire the spirit, respect it, and only encourage it. But they will be beaten into submission by time and fate, as, as you know. We all are, as we all are. As we all are. I think it's important to think differently, but I think it's also important to always appreciate how little you really know at 24. That you really, what you need is read, read, read every single day. You see all the books around me. I'm the owner of 15,000 books. Um, why? Because reading every single day, not just science, but fiction and literature and poetry and history, everything is important for you. Uh, so you can't imbibe all that and think that you're going to change the world at the ripe old age of uh, <clears throat> seven or something. No. I mean, think it, but at least keep working towards doing it in a different way. So I feel like young people in Pakistan, you are saying they're followers. The ones I meet, they are very revolutionary in thinking and they think they can sitting from Pakistan and I love it. And the best proof is that uh, this just two, three weeks ago, it was announced or maybe a few months ago, a Forbes magazine has a 30 under 30 list, which means 30 people under 30 years of age who are future leaders in technology. Out of 30, four are from Pakistan. And wow. one of them, I, Asad Malik, go look him up. Which he's doing uh, augmented reality. Augmented reality. This kid at 24 graduates from Binghamton. He comes from some village in Punjab, graduates from Binghamton. And Nadeem, can you believe that they took him immediately on their board? Where Buddhas, like 65-year-olds sit, this 24-year-old wow. is serving there on the board. So my, I mean, the fact is our kids are much smarter, I feel, than Fair anywhere. Let me bring you to another question mm -hmm. that I think should be explained. You talked about reductionism. 
and you talked about the traffic problem, and you talked about the heterogeneity of cancer and the complexity of cancer. And you also had this very interesting story, and you should tell that story about Ayub Umayya, um, and also introduce Umayya Sab to people. I mean, he's another person I got to know well in Washington, a uh, lovely man, and also a man of letters and a man of, uh, uh, you know, wide reading, including singing opera. So, uh, you know, if you can comment, relate the Umayya story, tell us about reductionism, complexity, and how you see the world uh, as a complex whole and how cancer can be an emergent phenomenon. Yeah, beautiful questions, thank you. Well, um, kids, I was, uh, did a little rotation at George Washington University, that's part of my residency and um, fellowship. So I was at George Washington University in Washington, DC, and uh, Dr. Ayub Umayya was the neurosurgeon, head of neurosurgery there. And of course, I immediately, I had known of him and met him through family connections already. So we started having lunch together every day for several months, we did that while I was there. And we had the most interesting conversations, Nadeem and Samia, because I was literally, I was like 26 at the time. And here he was a godlike figure. Dr. Umayya had invented a small balloon-like thing, which you could insert uh, with a tiny incision, you could insert this little balloon that would connect directly to the ventricles in the brain. And now you could inject chemotherapy. Um, it would just, you could close the skin over it. The incision was closed. And now people could get uh, therapy for brain tumors directly, just through an injection especially for kids with leukemia, it's very important because it invades the spinal cord and the brain tissues. It's called the Omaya Reservoir. And Dr. Omaya was very famous already because of this Omaya Reservoir. Um, but as Nadeem said, he was a true Renaissance man. His interests in all kinds of uh, uh, <coughs> arts and humanities and humanity in general, the suffering of humanity, but very deep thinker about uh, neurologic issues. And uh, um, so I asked him one day during lunch, I said, Dr. Umayya, what level of reductionism do you think will be required at the brain level to find the root of consciousness? What does reductionism be without? Please tell reduction what reduction is. <laughs> reduction, reductionism is simply what it means that you keep cutting, slicing down to the very basic point, keep reducing things to their essential principle. So, for example, we start with the brain, we go to the gray matter, then we go to the neural tissue, then we go to a neuron, then inside the neuron there are a trillion molecules. Which molecule do we look at? The nuclear cytoplasm. Should we look at organelles or should we look at surface markers? You know, what level of how is consciousness uh, uh, arising? And the example he gave me was very beautiful. He said, Azra, look at the Taj Mahal, how beautiful it is. Now, if you want to find the secret of its beauty by taking it apart brick by brick to thinking that somehow I'm going to reach some molecular level at which I'll find the uh, cause for its um, just uh, stunning, staggering magnificence, then you are wrong because what you'll end up with by taking things apart is rubble and trash, nothing else. It's the whole 
which is greater than some of its individual parts, that's giving it the beauty. And that emergent property, which is bigger than the sum of its individual parts is complexity. And another explanation I use in the book for complexity is simply this, water, you freeze it, it becomes ice. You haven't changed any fundamental components of water. There's still hydrogen and oxygen, the same proportion. But when they become ice, how do you explain the slipperiness of ice? It's an emergent property. It does not depend on the number of hydrogen and oxygen atoms because then water should be slippery like ice and it's not. That's the difference between reductionism and an emergent property. An emergent property or complexity is far greater, unpredictable, unexpected uh, coming out of something which you never thought would happen. And so Dr. Umayya opened my eyes to start thinking very differently from an earlier stage in life. And thanks to him, I now have several shelves of chaos and complexity and all kinds of things I started reading in science immediately because of him to broaden my way of thinking. <clears throat> yes, reductionism is not going to get us ultimately. It is important in some things, but in the final analysis, remember the farther you go out into the sea, the deeper it gets. <clears throat> and so sometimes it's better to think of things from an opposite perspective. Hmm. Tell me, what role does the funding play? For example, we have, we've got a very arcane system of research that we've copied in Pakistan. I mean, HEC has copied it, which is basically that you have funding and then you have peer review and peer review drives funding and peer review drives your promotion, etc. And you've written about that in your book too. And you are not quite happy with it. So how does, uh, what's your critique? How should it be changed? How should we, how, how should we look at it? Yeah. Um, I think there are three uh, models of funding here in this country that we can follow. Mm -hmm. The first is that you apply for formal grants that are being offered by, say, government institutions like the National Institute of Health, the FDA, things like that. A second one is, of course, uh, philanthropic funding, where you go to Bill Gates and say, I have such a big idea, can you fund this? And um, we might do it. Or you apply to philanthropic organizations like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society that is formed by members who want to improve um, you know, outcome for cancer patients. And a third model in this country, which is very interesting, is that of inviting venture capitalists and say, look, I have this idea. If you put $100 million in me today and help me develop this idea, then you can make a billion dollars in five to seven years. So there are various models now in this country. Also, big pharma can fund you to uh, join their uh, research and development endeavors. I feel that in every single case, what matters is the merit of your idea, really. And you know, uh, the last thing I'll say about it is that every technologic company in America that is successful, if they employ a thousand employees, 100 will be purely technical people, 100 out of a thousand, like writing the algorithms, 
sitting all day and simply working on one little how to do, um, you know, how to use one click to get to this particular site and they will spend their whole life doing that. But 900 employees will be not technology related at all. They'll be humanities graduates because they're the ones who are going to do the marketing, the education, the policy uh, formation and changes. In other words, you can know how to do something and what to do as a technologic person. But why you should do it? How will it help humanity? How can you make some profit out of it? All those things come from a completely non-technical background. So I think it's very important to remember when you are applying for funding and thinking about it, that you think of both aspects, not just, okay, I want to look at this gene. How will, that's what you want to do. How will I look at it? I will do, uh, I will CRISPR in a mutation in this gene and see how its uh, abnormal function develops. So that's what you will do. But why are you doing it? Why this gene? How will it help a cancer patient? You know, those questions you have to think about and pay more attention to them when applying for grants to convince at an emotional level, someone who now has ownership, they become so convinced that it becomes their project. That means improve your communication skills. Sorry, Samia. I have a, I have a question as follow-up of, of yours. So, uh, uh, you know, this recent, uh, recent COVID, <laughs> COVID alumni, it has, it has, you know, kind of filtered out a lot of problems in the system, in, in systems in the United States, you know, where they are deficient and, you know, uh, what is missing and what needs to be done. And of course, you know, with the new administration taking over, there seems to be a very serious, serious commitment towards, uh, um, you know, doing something and improving, improving uh, systems as we go forward. So, USA-related, I have two two uh, questions. I know that you were you were you were and uh, and we were very proud to hear that at that time that Vice President Biden had invited you to Moonshot Jinta to be to be uh, in charge of that or or to get your feedback on that. So, if you can tell us, you know, a little bit about uh, about that aspect. And the other thing is that how do you see now? The, the, uh, do you think that the funding and the, and the focus will move towards this uh, infectious disease um, mitigation systems or hospital improvements and all of that? And how does it impact your work? Do you see that happening? Um, well, you're absolutely right, Samia, that COVID to me has served like an X-ray machine. It's allowing us to see all that is wrong behind that, yeah. you know, the skin and bones. We are looking yeah. straight through now and yeah. seeing, um, you know, uh, Samia at Columbia University, if I want to uh, bring in a new clinical experimental trial, it takes six months to a year to get it approved. Usually nine to 10 months. You know how long it took us to get the COVID remdesivir trial approved, nine days. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, probably a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally a week. So we know it can be done. It was all the same systems, the internal review committee, the IRB committee, this committee, that. It could be done. 
what we are saying is you treated a problem as urgent and you find the solution, which means yeah. you're not treating the cancer problem as an urgent problem. That's what it's pointed out. Yeah. That cancer should be dealt with not as an individual issue, but as a population crisis. It's uh, facing an urgent crisis is for the whole population. Second question you asked about Vice President Biden. I was very, yes, I felt very proud to be invited and little had I, dream, uh, uh, had I dreamt living in Pakistan that one day I'll be sitting at the National Observatory in the dining room and exchanging like hi, hello with the Vice President. And Samia, it was very interesting. I started talking about cancer and he kept stopping me. But where are you from, Dr. Raza? I said, Pakistan. <laughs> then he launched an along because we had nine other people with launched on a long thing about his interaction with Benazir, how much he loved her, what a charismatic woman he was. And then he started telling us his own stories with Benazir and Pakistan. And um, it was very sweet. I mean, he was so engaging because he was more interested in me as a person also. You see, that I think is a people's skill. That's why yeah, he's yeah. sitting in the White House today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at that, for those 15, 20 minutes, no one else existed in the room except me for him. And he yeah. just having this conversation with me. Of course, I presented my ideas somehow to him. But I think, um, you know, the, the, the usual mafia then descended and took away all the money for research and yeah. not for early detection. You know how that happened. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm not someone to be stopped easily either. I keep yeah. attacking from different angles. Yeah. And your last question is very important about where will the future take us? And I wanted to say that the future of all of healthcare, not just cancer, is going to be one of not reactive, but proactive. Reactive means we see disease, we treat it. Now, future will be, we try to detect the footsteps of the disease way in advance. Think of heart disease. We have dropped the mortality from heart disease by 70%. Why? Yeah. Not only because we are stenting diseased coronary arteries or performing bypass surgery, but because we are lowering cholesterol by preventing those things from happening. That's Look right. at infectious diseases. It's not that we have very smart antibiotics and antifungals and antivirals, but we have vaccines to prevent yeah. polio, prevent diphtheria, prevent tox uh, yeah. tetanus, things like that. So we, ha we have learned that no matter which healthcare you take, diabetes, heart disease, strokes, we should be Alzheimer's, we should be preventing them because by the time they are diagnosed, they're too advanced, all of them. A stroke has already happened. Now we're trying to get the limb to work again. No, we should have prevented this stroke by intervening 10 years. So the future will be every individual will have a cloud of billions of data points that are being collected by their Fitbits and by these little chips, you can put a drop of blood and it will measure all kinds of important metabolites and send this information directly to your iPhone. This chip is already FDA approved from Columbia University wow. and detect PSA. Now we are trying to develop a tiny little chip that we can at Columbia, me and the biomedical engineers, that we can insert under the skin at birth. And this will constantly 
uh, be uh, monitoring for the appearance of the first cell. And then all you have to do is pass a little sonographic uh, sonogram-like device onto this where you the, your chip is inserted once a month, once every six months, and that will show you how many cells have been trapped there or what are the metabolites that are circulating that can tell us the earliest markers of disease. So I think the future will be I, uh, clouds with billions of data with dynamic information about vital signs, blood pressure, things like that, blood sugar level, all kinds of metabolite levels being fed into the data cloud also. And then the doctor's job will only be to look at a screen, see through artificial intelligence what has been now through machine learning of these billions of data points over my head in the iCloud, what is AI saying is the most likely diagnosis I'm going to have three years from now? Will it be heart disease or will it be Alzheimer's? We can tell already eight to 10 years in advance, I have caught the first cell. I hope you guys will attend my lecture at Aga Khan, which I'm giving at uh, on March 2nd, where I'm going to show the pictures of the first cell actually, which we have trapped four <laughs> years in advance of actual cancer appearing. Wow. So you see, awesome. the, the future is all going to be prevention rather than cure. Monitoring wellness to detect illness way before it has become disease. That's what the future holds. But Azra, Azra I think this we've been hearing for a long time. But uh, the, you know, some books have been written. A guy, Topol, who writes about this too. But the question is, your medical profession will they accept it? Because even today, for example, what I find amazing is that my records, whatever records that I have, I don't have them. They're lying with different doctors. Why can't my records, for example, be in the cloud? So when you are saying this, the doctors have a vested interest in making me come to them all the time, right? Will they accept this cloud and this thing? Is the human element going to be there or not? It's a very good question. And your criticism is very well placed, Nadeem. And of course, I faced this for 40 years, the same thing also. So you're not alone. I feel the same way. But I have so much confidence that if Steve, thanks to Steve Job, if a woman sitting in, uh, uh, in uh, for example, Faslabad uh, has in her hands computer that is millions of times faster than the largest computer that ever existed in 1970s. She now, you know, standing in a field of uh, uh, wheat is holding this computer and, you know, connecting to someone in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, some family member who has gotten a green card and gone. It's this is the power of technology. And how many people did you need to convince? Nothing. The thing, if it's successful, will catch on. That's the key. And in science and technology, we are a little better off because technology just has to show like the iPhone showed. We have to just show that early detection. I'm, if I show that come, coming out and say, I can find the first cell. Where, who am I targeting? And I don't want to scare anybody. But one in five new cancers are diagnosed in a cancer survivor. And so, in other words, people who have beaten one cancer are at high risk of getting another. So why not just keep taking their blood every six months and looking for these markers I'm talking about? 
Um, and then this is what I have developed, a first cell center for cancer survivors as part of the think tank. All the universities have now are taking part in it. Just yesterday, I got the approval for the center. We have received a very large funding grant for these universities to work together to simply collect the samples from 50,000 cancer survivors in the next two years. Between all, uh, all of us, the various universities, MD Anderson sees 80,000 cancer patient survivors a year, 80,000 survivors. If they give us 20,000 know, for the samples, then within two years, we'll have 50,000 samples and maybe 300 people have developed a second cancer already. So we go back to just study those 300 patients and say, this is the first cell right here. This is the footprint. And once I publish it and say, look, in cancer survivors, I could find, detect cancer three years in advance. Then cancer survivors will step up and say, well, I want to be a part of this. I want to be monitored. I'd rather know two years in advance and have my first cell removed or whatever diet or lifestyle change I have to make, I should make. That's my whole idea. So you're right. We've been hearing about early detection, but that early detection has been through mammograms, colonoscopy. They're primitive things. Colonoscopy is putting a tube in someone's gut and trying to look for cancer. By the time you find that tumor, it's too big. I'm saying use the latest technology to move back, find it early, and take care of it right then and there, and don't let it develop. And also, these tests are not very efficient, if I remember right. Yes, they are completely yeah. inefficient. But still, yeah, yeah. it is thanks to screening and anti-smoking campaign that we have been reducing the mortality from cancer through early detection and anti-smoking campaign 1% a year for the last 30 years, which means that it has dropped by 27%. And all of it is related just to mammograms, colonoscopy, PSA, pap smears, and anti-smoking campaigns. I'm saying even that is too far gone. We need to move back. Let me take a couple of questions from the floor. Shahid? Shahid, go ahead. Yeah, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Dr. Azra, thank you so much for this very nice talk. Thank you. Uh, this is indeed great talk. Uh, and it's interesting that you talked about the cancer and discussed it so much. I lost my father about one and a half years ago to cancer. My mother is uh, presently on her deathbed uh, due to cancer. So my question is a short one. What should we all do? The ones present here. For the, I'm a, in my position, I'm a bit afraid now, if you can understand. I mean, it's a bit of a uncertainty because uh, it didn't used to happen in my family. None of my grandfathers or grandma had cancer, but my father died of cancer. And now my mother, she's uh, uh, probably not going to survive long. So what can you advise us all in this regard? Well, Shahid, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear about your father. I'm very sorry that your mother is suffering and my heart goes out to you. I don't think that there is any difference, much difference in treatment in the US versus Pakistan. In Pakistan, the same people are cured with slash poison burn that we are curing here. So first of all, I want to set your mind at ease that whatever 
could be done. I'm sure they're doing it in Pakistan already. Yes, they don't have, you know, experimental trials and access to um, a few uh, therapies, which are anyway, even in America, very few people have access to. I think um, set your mind at ease that everything that could be done has been done medically by the oncologists. However, if your mother is facing a terminal illness, I hope not, but if she is, then instead of uh, losing hope, um, when, when you're faced with an issue like that, you can't plan long-term because obviously um, long-term planning could not, uh, may not come to pass. So you actually um, start paying attention to the moment. You have your mother now, instead of worrying about what will happen three months from now, six months or a year and constantly driving yourself crazy about what no one can tell you uh, about, uh, I recommend to you that you start enjoying her every moment, celebrating her, getting your family, giving her the emotional support that she needs. Give her, um, I mean, you don't have to tell any kinds of lies or make up things, but you don't break her spirit. You keep uh, giving her uh, hope for the next day that tomorrow so-and-so will come visit, we can do this or that. I mean, you don't have to engage in any kind of uh, confabulations to give uh, strength and emotional support to people who, for whom time is uh, a real issue. And believe me that people who are facing uh, mortality actually have a good inkling about it and they're very scared about it. And you don't have to beat them on the head with a kind of conversation. So I hope that this advice will help you uh, celebrate her life, whatever is there of it. And I hope it will be a long one rather than you losing hope or being discouraged. But the last thing you mentioned is very important that you're now concerned about yourself because there seems to be a long family history. Yes, family histories are sometimes important like breast cancer, especially when associated with mutations in certain genes like BRCA1 or 2, etc. But it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Don't get scared because um, um, it's familial cancers are rather rare. Okay, Rania Tahir. Rania. Uh, I'm sorry again, sir. Actually, uh, it's my daughter's name again. I'm Mahmood Khalid. I'm from Paid, and it has been a very um, informative talk. And uh, it's a different topic normally, which we have on our webinars. But in fact, in our health economics department, we had two theses on uh, this subject. And in fact, because in Pakistan, since there is no cancer registry, so the students actually worked on this aspect and they tried to collect some data in terms of uh, what types of patients are coming into the hospital. And uh, the, uh, the reason for us was basically to look for the cost effectiveness in terms of who gets to the hospital at what point in time and what are the administrative and other costs. But my question is that uh, would the experience be different for a cancer patient uh, because of their uh, genetic structures, their uh, living behaviors and others in terms of Pakistan versus any other developed country. The reason to ask this is that if we go long in terms of developing some kind of a preventive strategy, that has to be 
taking into consideration what sort of factors are basically the determining factors. Thank you. Ji. Uh, look, I think that there is no substitute for science. I mean, I can't tell you that you can prevent cancer sitting in Pakistan by eating fewer eggs. Uh, technology has to be there. The whole idea is that the first world or the developed world is able, they're affluent enough to invest in a hundred projects, three of which can be paradigm shifting. And 97 will fail completely and that money will be lost. Only in a few countries, I would say only in America right now, can that happen? And so technology has to be developed by people here and there is no substitute for it. I hope that answers your question. In that sense, I think that um, importing technology and asking your own set of questions to, uh, to start monitoring patients for the appearance of the first cell, you could do the largest trial very quickly because um, people would be so much more willing to participate in trials. So I think that living in an area like Pakistan, you try to use the instruments for research that are available, the best ones that you can apply and apply them to your own population and ask the questions that are relevant to your population. I think Pakistan would be an absolute hotbed for finding the first cell. Even though the technology is uh, being developed here, it will become you know, instantly available everywhere. That's the beauty of science. Ayaz Ahmed? Thank you, sir. Madam, very interesting lecture. My question is very simple. Which type of diet one can use in order to stop the growth of the cancer germs? I wish, Ayaz, that it was so simple that simply changing your diet would stop the growth of cancer. So do not listen to anyone who's trying to tell you this kind of stuff. There have been, since I came to America, uh, waves of this fashionable keto, uh, ketogenic diet where you only eat protein and starve the tumor. Um, all those things cannot work on advanced cancers. So the idea of how to prevent cancer is the most important one. Don't eat carcinogenic things like processed foods. Don't uh, have these uh, drinks which are um, filled with chemicals. Try to eat healthy. Try to maintain a lifestyle that is keeps you moving and keeps you in good shape. And those are the only things you can do hopefully to prevent any chronic disease, but there is no proof that any of these things in the long run will uh, be sufficient by themselves, sufficient by themselves to uh, avoid diseases. Asma Haider, Dean of IBA. Asma Haider. Asma, unmute yourself. Yeah, can you hear me? Um, thank you very much, Azra. Um, it was very interesting talk. So uh, I just want to hear your comment on, for instance, you talked about uh, advancement in medicine and inserting a chip, for instance, in human body. But uh, uh, what do you think about it? The, for instance, Pakistan is still struggling with malaria, for instance, the simplest thing. Uh, 
and similarly we are still fighting with the, the child mortality is very high because of the dye gap and treatment is extremely simple and similarly many of the african countries are after decades they are still fighting with the hiv and AIDS. so what is your comment so my worries are about the huge inequalities in health uh, that exist between the developed and developing countries uh, yeah, that's fine. The technology, it's very easy to transfer the technology, but still we are not maybe adopting it. Uh, so what is your comment on that? Uh, thank you, Asma. You've asked the hardest question. The fact that I am an oncologist and researcher by no means make, makes me an expert on the kind of question you're asking, the policy-related questions, how to implement and how to um, really educate the public. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, if malaria and, um, uh, you know, infant mortality through infectious diseases is still an, an issue in underdeveloped world, uh, it is really an embarrassment and a shame on all of us. We need to develop those areas and pay attention to them. But this is what I've always been impressed by in Pakistan, that on the one hand, we, with the simplest things we are unable to do, we are unable to educate our children properly, we are unable to, uh, assure, to ensure proper health care for a pregnant woman and early care for the newborn, etc. But on the other hand, we have the atom bomb, which is absolutely the most complicated thing you could ever think of doing. So it means once again that the country, the intellect, the resources are there if they want to do something. They can even produce an atomic bomb. Uh, by the way, for the students, everyone who's listening to me, you see my big library, but there is one book that is the best book I have ever read, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. Do read it because not just about physics and how the atomic bomb was made uh, during the Second World War, but it also gives you a perspective into the questions that Asma is asking about related to policy, how do you apply it? How do you think of the human issues involved in developing an atomic bomb? My point in all this, Asma, is simply this, that I feel your pain. I wish I could have a glib answer for it. I don't. I do think that Pakistan has the intellect and the resources to do what they want. And proof of the pudding is that when they wanted, they could build the atomic bomb. It's the same thing I said about COVID-19 protocols for treatment can be approved in nine days in my institution. And a cancer trial takes a year to be approved. We know that all the machinery that is needed is there. It's the will. So what is the will of the Pakistani people? Are they uh, willing to pay attention to impoverished children or are they more interested in, uh, you know, uh, whatever other uh, areas they invest in? I'm not really good at this at all. I would say that, uh, that all of us, because I consider myself very much a Pakistani and whatever I can do at my level to help, I do it. Um, we should all work towards creating the audience that I started to talk about in the beginning for people to expect better things from us, not to only be benefiting a small group of people who the haves and at the expense of the have-nots. The have-nots should be um, should have rising expectations of what to, to get. And then I think uh, people will have to uh, distribute resources better. 
and you have just broken my heart by saying kids are dying of malaria or infectious diseases of any sort like infant mortality and simple things can't be implemented. It's really a very huge tragedy. Samia, do you have any last questions or thoughts? Yes, Nadeem, I do. And I will, I will uh, you know, just add to what uh, Azra has said. Exactly, that's always been my point that, you know, Pakistan, if Pakistan can build the atomic bomb, I just struggle and I fight everywhere to say, why can't we build, uh, you know, basic minimum health system and a health services delivery system that can cater to the needs of these kids, you know, who are malnourished and stunted and women who are basically just dying in delivery, dying in childbirth, just for lack of blood transfusions and for lack of timely cesarean infections. So yeah, you know, that is that is a question of, of prioritizing. Who is who is your priority? Like as I said, Pakistanis are very smart and you know they they are hardworking and they want to do that. But to me it seems in my experience of 30 years of doing this that this is the the citizen in Pakistan is not really a priority for the policymaker. That's what I have to say with really a lot of sadness that to me it seems very clear that if the average citizen was a priority of the policymakers, they would do it. And it's not lack of funding. I mean you look at the amount of money that has been invested in the in the Pakistan's EPI program, the extended program for immunization specifically the polio polio program, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And yet even today, you know, just four weeks ago, I had gone for a visit to Kasul, which is a, a kind of a rural district. And it's just about 50 miles driving distance from Lahore where I live. And, uh, you know, when people find out that, you know, there's a doctor who comes from the city, a lot of people gather in the, in the health center that I was sitting in and women come and, you know, they talk about their problems and so on. So a woman actually told me that just the other day her child died. You know, she was crying and she, uh, you know, um, had had come for um, examination because she was trying to get pregnant for the past six months and she wasn't being very successful. And uh, I, and she was very thin and very emaciated and looked very anemic. So I told her, and she was young, maybe 19 years old. So I said that you are young and you know you need to build up your own strength before you start to have another baby. So she said, no, I've been married for four years and I've already had one baby who died. So I just started talking to her and asked her, how did that baby die? So what she described, Azra, I tell you, it was diphtheria. And imagine we are in the 21st century and just four weeks ago or six months ago, you know, a child just 15, 50 minutes drive from Lahore is dying of diphtheria. So it just, you know, it's just a very, in many ways, a very heartbreaking situation. I wish there was some way to have policymakers you know, kind of focus on this. You know, the the uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan in his maiden speech that he gave in, I think, July of 2018. I found it very encouraging and very heartening, you know, because we had been, you know, seeing him come to power and speak to speak uh, about all these things. And he spent almost 35 minutes of that maiden speech on infant mortality rate, on poor nutrition, on stunting <laughs> in Pakistani children on high, unacceptably high maternal mortality rate. And you know, those of us who were listening to him, you know, we were so encouraged and so heartened. But again, if you look at what's happening, you know, it's back to square one, the new hospitals are being built, you know, which is, there's nothing wrong with building hospitals, but you know, a hospital, like you said, is really the last stop 
it's not the first first stop so uh, so i don't know i don't know asma i am i'm a, basically an optimist person and like azra i will keep fighting and i will keep pushing and i will find other means to do it but there are times when, <laughs> there are times when one feels very heartbroken good for you azra there is a last question coming from a strange quarter my wife here she's listening oh. <laughs> can i see your wife adab Assalamualaikum. Uh, I am so very proud of you in uh, so many ways. Uh, I love the fact that you're a poet, and I myself am an artist and a poet, and a very unlikely person to be in this webinar. But I admire you so much because, in order to be a healer, you have traveled far beyond the borders of simply medicine. You're beautifully read. don't shrug like a modest shrug you have and i think in the world we need more healers than just doctors and uh, medicine people um i myself my experience with doctors has been that uh, i've been patronized they talk down to me they think i know nothing about my own body so in today's age everyone has the internet everyone knows what goes on what goes into making a human body and how it functions so how can i have a question how can everyone be encouraged in every field to take a holistic view to life in general to open new frontiers for themselves just like dr ramaya may he rest in grace when i met him i he just blew me away and this is many decades ago and we lost him too early but i find that in every field we are we are tunnel vision chahe economics so forgive me everyone um chahe wo medicine ho or uh, even in poetry in pakistan we tend to get stuck in the classics so you as a teacher and a healer can reach out to everyone to uh, at least try to step into the world of um Uh, maybe metaphysics can be yeah not religion to kind of forces with us lekin creativity ki taraf thoda sa to jaye na sabse little bit uh, dr samia i think will agree with me i've known her for many many years um uh, because in the end everything is connected i was stuck in a rut i couldn't write i couldn't paint and i took bio 101 at the national community college local community college and it really broke down many dams for me So that is my question. Please reach out to people to explore. At least possibilities to they can. Because in the game, what can I do? Thank you, and I love you for what you are doing. Well, thank you so much. I don't know your name. Oh, Farida. Farida, don't disappear. I want to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for those heartfelt remarks. I'm duly honored and really flattered that you took the time to listen to this, even though it's not your field, like you said. I want to respond to you seriously because what the issues you have raised are very serious issues. Uh, first of all, let me uh, thank you for thinking I'm a poet. I'm not. I just have a good memory and I memorize poetry of the great Asatiza, because I think uh, two lines of a share are like the double helix of the DNA, two strands of the DNA for me. A macrocosm is contained in fourteen words by Ghalib in two lines, and a macrocosm of uh, 
instructions to make a protein that will make hemoglobin is contained in two little strands of DNA. So um, also poets, of course, and scientists are very curious by nature, like you are. You are an artist, but yet you went to Bio 101. And that changed your life because uh, both of them involve curiosity and paying attention to detail. And that's what we do in poetry and both. I think the question you ask is a very important one that how do we look at any problem in a holistic way and not with a tunnel vision? That's your question. I have a very, maybe a very simplistic answer. I hope I'll make sense of it through a poem that I lend with in honor of Farida. My answer is, Zahir ki aankh se na tamasha kare koi, ho dekhna, to dee dil wa kare koi. Open the eyes of your heart, have empathy, and then whatever subject you are looking wow. at, whether it's cancer or economics, it's mathematics or it's English literature. The eyes, the lens of empathy will change everything because now you're going to exchange places with the person who's dealing with the problem. And then you will look at it in a holistic way. So my suggestion is just that. And then of course, uh, all our poets have at, at one time or another Farida have uh, basically held a kind of uh, challenge for the greatest healer of all times, who is Hazrat Isa, a great prophet who could raise the dead, right? Lazarus, he raised from the dead and gave a second life to. But practically all our poets complain about this. Ghalib ne to keh diya ke ibn Maryam hua kare koi you see, even a prophet who is raising the dead does not have a, uh, an answer for what I'm suffering. What is that? So he can cure somebody, but he can't heal. What a challenge to his Ratisa. Um, and I'll end with reading this uh, beautiful ghazal by Mustar Khairabadi. It is so lovely. And again, it's a kind of a lamentation about the misunderstanding between cure and healing. And here Mustar Khairabadi is writing, you know, in the early 1900s. And what does he say? Ilaje darde dil tumse masiha ho nahi sakta. I mean, again, dard-e-dil ka ilaj to Hazrat Isa ke paas bhi nahi hai. Ilaj-e dard-e-dil tumse masiha ho nahi sakta, tum achha kar nahi sakte, mai achha ho nahi sakta. Tumhye chahun, tumhare chahne walon ko bhi chahun. Mera dil pher do, mujhse ye jhagda ho nahi sakta. Or udu ko chhod do, फिर जान भी मांगो तो हाजिर है पर तुम ऐसा कर नहीं सकते और ऐसा हो नहीं सकता एंड दिस एक्चुअली फरीदा इस शेर में जो पढ़ने वाले हैं में एक अजीब खासियत है वो ये कि यू हैव ओनली लाइक 14 टू 20 वर्ड्स इन व्हिच यू हैव टू कन्वे योर मीनिंग इन अ शेर एंड अ प्रोफाउंड मीनिंग राइट सो इट्स अ नो नो टू यूज द सेम वर्ड इन बोथ लाइंस 
complete no-no, but only a master could do it. Ab dekhi, Mustar Khairabadi ne isme kya keh diya? Udu ko chhod do, phir jaan bhi mango to hazir hai, to waisa kar nahi sakte, aur aisa ho nahi sakta. Abhi marte hain hum, jeene ka taana, phir na dena tum. What a grand statement he's making. Abhi marte hain hum, जीने का ताना फिर न देना तुम ये ताना उनको देना जिनसे ऐसा हो नहीं सकता हाउ ब्यूटीफुली ही वर्ड्स ब्रिंग्स द वर्ड ताना इन बोथ लाइंस ओनली अ मास्टर एंड देन द लास्ट इज सो ब्यूटीफुल दमे आखिर मेरी बाली पे मजमा है हसीनों का ही इज डाइंग सराउंडेड बाय द ब्यूटीफुल वन दमे आखिर मेरी बाली पे मजमा है हसीनों का अरे फरिश्ता मौत का फिर आए पर्दा हो नहीं सकता तुमसे मसीहा हो नहीं सकता तुम अच्छा कर नहीं सकते मैं अच्छा हो नहीं सकता तो माई आई होप दैट मैसेज that all the ingredients are there we just need the will where there's a will there will be a way and the way to find your will and strengthen your resolve is by opening the eyes of your heart thank you thank you so much thank you very much wonderful good thing getting the conversation out of the special avenue not at all thank you thank you azra thank you very much two last requests one is can you please send us a link for your arhan uh, talk i'm sure lots of people here would like to attend even though it might be more erudite than we can take but still it's worth stimulating something that to learn more the second thing i want to ask is as you said you write very empathetic empathetically for your patients lady and omar andrew etc what i found amazing was the way you related to and the way you transcended the patient doctor relationship which is um parida says that all of us experience but in the door so you will out the door with a quick prescription but that's beside the point one thing that i recall very carefully that you said about umar that he had compiled the list of 100 books that you must read to live Will you share that list with us? I'd like to put it up on our website so that our kids can read. I try and encourage the kids here. One thing that we've kind of lost in Pakistan is the habit of reading, and I try and encourage our kids to read all the time. We've got a list of books that we give them all the time, and we try and have reading competitions. So it would be very nice if you could give us that list. We'll put it up. Omar's list. That will be a nice memory of him too, so that I kind of relate to him 
from what you wrote about him um, and uh, your Khan thing. So folks, this has been a treat. I've really enjoyed our conversation with you, Azra. And from time to time, we'll I think my, Can I make a very quick comment? Please, please go ahead. Uh, you know, this, uh, this has been, and, and you know, if Azra is speaking anywhere, it's not possible to do it without poetry and, and, uh, and literature. So yes, you know, I feel that for young people, what I have found useful in my own life in learning and understanding about life is just reading. Just read everything. And for me, reading is like, uh, and I know Azra, that uh, you also liked Emily Dickinson very much. I discovered Emily Dickinson when I was young and in college. And she, I just carry her on my shoulders with me everywhere. I don't have the memory to, to commit it to memory. But line from one of her poems, I forget which one it is, that she, she says, I taste a liquor brewed from tankards scooped in pearls. So that's how I feel when I read. You know, I read, read stories and I read junk and I read dramas and I read whatever I can. So yeah, I just wanted to add that, that that uh, 100 uh, books list would be very, very useful. You know, it's like drinking from a tankard, you know, of uh, uh, scoop and pearls. So thank you. Thank you. Very much. put up Omar's list on the PAT website, if you allow it. And thank you very much, Azra. It's been a treat. It's been wonderful. We will call upon you again from time to time to give us some talk, just to help the kids. Absolutely. Thank you, folks. You can see Azra on the Literary Festival, Think Fest. She's on the literary side. She didn't talk, talk about medicine there. She talks about literature. So all the best, folks. Thank you, Azra. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you to my interlocutors. Thank you to the students. Thank you to Asma, uh, Samia, Nadeem. Really honored to be here. Khuda Hafiz. Khuda Hafiz. Thank you. Khuda Hafiz. Khuda Hafiz. Khuda Hafiz everyone. Khuda Hafiz.